0: Section fourteen of The Secret Agent by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twelve Part two The shop seemed to be quite dark at first-the door stood ajar-Missus Verloc leaning against the front gasped out-Nobody has been in-look-the light-the light light in the parlour! Ossipon stretching his head forward saw a faint gleam in the darkness of the shop, "'There is,' he said. "'I forgot it.' "'Mrs. Verloc's voice came from behind her veil faintly. "'And as he stood waiting for her to enter, she said louder, "'Go in and put it out, or I'll go mad.' "'He made no immediate objection to this proposal, so strangely motived. "'Where's all that money?' he asked. "'On me. Go, Tom. Quick, put it out. Go in.' she cried, seizing him by both shoulders from behind. Not prepared for a display of physical force, Comrade Ossipon stumbled far into the shop before her push. He was astonished at the strength of the woman, and scandalized by her proceedings. But he did not retrace his steps in order to remonstrate with her severely in the street. He was beginning to be disagreeably impressed by her fantastic behavior. Moreover, This, or never, was the time to humour the woman. Comrade Ossipon avoided easily the end of the counter, and approached calmly the glazed door of the parlour. The curtain over the panes being drawn back a little, he, by a very natural impulse, looked in, just as he made ready to turn the handle. He looked in without a thought, without intention, without curiosity of any sort. He looked in because he could not help looking in, He looked in and discovered Mr Verloc reposing quietly on the sofa. A yell coming from the innermost depths of his chest died out unheard and transformed into a sort of greasy, sickly taste on his lips. At the same time, the mental personality of Comrade Ossipon executed a frantic leap backward. But his body, left thus without intellectual guidance, held on to the door-handle with the unthinking force of an instinct. The robust anarchist did not even totter, and he stared, his face close to the glass, his eyes protruding out of his head. He would have given anything to get away, but his returning reason informed him that it would not do to let go the door-handle. What was it? Madness? A nightmare? Or a trap into which he had been decoyed with fiendish artfulness? Why? What for? He did not know. Without any sense of guilt in his breast, in the full peace of his conscience as far as these people were concerned, the idea that he would be murdered for mysterious reasons by the couple Verloc passed not so much across his mind as across the pit of his stomach, and went out, leaving behind a trail of sickly faintness, an indisposition. Comrade Ossipon did not feel very well in a very special way for a moment, a long moment, and he stared. Mr. Verloc lay very still meanwhile, simulating sleep for reasons of his own, while that savage woman of his was guarding the door, invisible and silent in the dark and deserted street. Was all this some sort of terrifying arrangement invented by the police for his especial benefit? His modesty shrank from that explanation. But the true sense of the scene he was beholding came to Ossipon through the contemplation of the hat. It seemed an extraordinary thing, an ominous object, a sign. Black and rim upward, it lay on the floor before the couch, as if prepared to receive the contributions of Pence from people who would come presently to behold Mr. Verloc in the fullness of his domestic ease, reposing on a sofa. From the hat, the eyes of the robust anarchist wandered to the displaced table, gazed at the broken dish for a time, received a kind of optical shock from observing a white gleam, under the imperfectly closed eyelids of the man on the couch. Mr. Verloc did not seem so much asleep now, as lying down with a bent head and looking insistently at his left breast. And when Comrade Ossipon had made out the handle of the knife, he turned away from the glazed door and retched violently. The crash of the street door flung to made his very soul leap in a panic, This house, with its harmless tenant, could still be made a trap of, a trap of a terrible kind. Comrade Ossipon had no settled conception now of what was happening to him. Catching his thigh against the end of the counter, he spun round, staggered with a cry of pain, felt in the distracting clatter of the bell his arms pinned to his side by a convulsive hug, while the cold lips of a woman moved creepily on his very ear to form the words Policeman. He has seen me. He ceased to struggle. She never let him go. Her hands had locked themselves with an inseparable twist of fingers on his robust back. While the footsteps approached, they breathed quickly, breast to breast, with hard, laboured breaths, as if theirs had been the attitude of a deadly struggle, while in fact it was the attitude of deadly fear. And the time was long. The constable on the beat had in truth seen something of Mrs. Verloc, only, coming from the lighted thoroughfare at the other end of Brett Street, she had been no more to him than a flutter in the darkness. And he was not even quite sure that there had been a flutter. He had no reason to hurry up. On coming abreast of the shop he observed that it had been closed early. There was nothing very unusual in that. The men on duty had special instructions about that shop. What went on about there was not to be meddled with unless absolutely disorderly, but any observations made were to be reported. There were no observations to make, but from a sense of duty and for the peace of his conscience, owing also to that doubtful flutter of the darkness, the constable crossed the road and tried the door. The spring latch, whose key was reposing for ever off duty in the late Mr. Verloc's waistcoat pocket, held as well as usual. While the conscientious officer was shaking the handle, Ossipon felt the cold lips of the woman stirring again creepily against his very ear. "'If he comes in, kill me, kill me, Tom!' The constable moved away, flashing as he passed the light of his dark lantern, merely for form's sake, at the shop window. For a moment longer the man and woman inside stood motionless, panting, breast to breast. Then her fingers came unlocked, Her arms fell by her side slowly. Ossipin leaned against the counter. The robust anarchist wanted support badly. This was awful. He was almost too disgusted for speech. Yet he managed to utter a plaintive thought, showing at least that he realised his position. Only a couple of minutes later and you'd have made me blunder against the fellow poking about here with his damned dark lantern. The widow of Mr Verloc... Motionless in the middle of the shop, said insistently, "'Go in and put that light out, Tom. It will drive me crazy.' She saw vaguely his vehement gesture of refusal. Nothing in the world would have induced Ossipon to go into the parlour. He was not superstitious, but there was too much blood on the floor, a beastly pool of it all round the hat. He judged he had been already far too near that corpse for his peace of mind, for the safety of his neck, perhaps. "'At the meter, then. There, look, in that corner.' The robust form of comrade Ossipon, striding brusque and shadowy across the shop, squatted in a corner obediently, but this obedience was without grace. He fumbled nervously, and suddenly, in the sound of a muttered curse, the light behind the glazed door flickered out to a gasping, hysterical sigh of a woman. Night, the inevitable reward of men's faithful labours on this earth. Night had fallen on Mr. Verloc, the tried revolutionist, one of the old lot, the humble guardian of society, the invaluable secret agent Delta of Baron Stott-Wartenheim's dispatches, a servant of law and order, faithful, trusted, accurate, admirable, with perhaps one single amiable weakness— the idealistic belief in being loved for himself. Ossipon groped his way back through the stuffy atmosphere, as black as ink now, to the counter. The voice of Mrs Verloc, standing in the middle of the shop, vibrated after him in that darkness with a desperate protest. I will not be hanged, Tom, I will not! She broke off. Ossipon, from the counter issued a warning. Don't shout like this then seemed to reflect profoundly. "'You did this thing quite by yourself,' he inquired in a hollow voice, but with an appearance of masterful calmness which filled Mrs. Verloc's heart with grateful confidence in his protecting strength. "'Yes,' she whispered, invisible. "'I wouldn't have believed it possible,' he muttered. "'Nobody would.' She heard him move about, and the snapping of a lock in the parlour door— Comrade Ossipon had turned the key on Mr. Verloc's repose, and this he did not from reverence for its eternal nature, or any other obscurely sentimental consideration, but for the precise reason that he was not at all sure that there was not someone else hiding somewhere in the house. He did not believe the woman, or rather he was incapable by now of judging what could be true, possible, or even probable in this astounding universe he was terrified out of all capacity for belief or disbelief in regard of this extraordinary affair which began with police inspectors and embassies and would end goodness knows where on the scaffold for someone he was terrified at the thought that he could not prove the use he made of his time ever since 7 o'clock for he had been skulking about brett street he was terrified at the savage woman who had brought him in there and would probably saddle him with complicity at least if he were not careful He was terrified at the rapidity with which he had been involved in such dangers, decoyed into it. It was some twenty minutes since he had met her, not more. The voice of Mrs. Verloc rose subdued, pleading piteously. "'Don't let them hang me, Tom. Take me out of the country. I'll work for you. I'll slave for you. I'll love you. I've no one in the world. Who would look at me if you don't?' She ceased for a moment. Then, in the depths of the loneliness made round her by an insignificant thread of blood trickling off the handle of a knife, she found a dreadful inspiration to her, who had been the respectable girl of the Belgravian mansion, the loyal, respectable wife of Mr. Verloc. "'I won't ask you to marry me,' she breathed out in shamefaced accents. She moved a step forward in the darkness. He was terrified at her. He would not have been surprised if she had suddenly produced another knife destined for his breast. He certainly would have made no resistance. He had really not enough fortitude in him just then to tell her to keep back. But he inquired in a cavernous, strange tone. Was he asleep? No, she cried, and went on rapidly. He wasn't. Not he. He had been telling me that nothing could touch him after taking the boy away from under my very eyes to kill him, the loving, innocent, harmless lad. My own, I tell you. He was lying on the couch quite easy, after killing the boy, my boy. I would have gone on the street to get out of his sight. And he says to me, like this, come here, after telling me I had helped to kill the boy. You hear, Tom? He says like this, come here, after taking my very heart out of me along with a boy to smash in the dirt. She ceased, then dreamily repeated twice, Blood and dirt, blood and dirt. A great light broke upon Comrade Ossipon. It was that half-witted lad then who had perished in the park. And the fooling of everybody all round appeared more complete than ever. Colossal! He exclaimed scientifically, in the extremity of his astonishment. The degenerate, by heavens! "'Come here!' The voice of Mrs. Verloc rose again. "'What did he think I was made of? Tell me, Tom. Come here. Me, like this. I had been looking at the knife, and I thought I would come then if he wanted me so much. Oh, yes, I came for the last time, with the knife!' He was excessively terrified at her, the sister of the degenerate, a degenerate herself of a murdering type, or else of the lying type. Comrade Ossipon might have been said to be terrified scientifically, in addition to all other kinds of fear. It was an immeasurable and composite funk, which from its very excess gave him in the dark a false appearance of calm and thoughtful deliberation. For he moved and spoke with difficulty— being as if half frozen in his will and mind, and no one could see his ghastly face. He felt half dead. He leapt a foot high. Unexpectedly Mrs. Verloc had desecrated the unbroken reserved decency of her home by a shrill and terrible shriek. Help, Tom! Save me! I won't be hanged! He rushed forward, groping for her mouth with a silencing hand, and the shriek died out but in his rush he had knocked her over. He felt her now clinging round his legs, and his terror reached its culminating point, became a sort of intoxication, entertained delusions, acquired the characteristics of delirium tremens. He positively saw snakes now. He saw the woman twined round him like a snake, not to be shaken off. She was not deadly. She was death itself, the companion of life. Mrs. Verloc, as if relieved by the outburst, was very far from behaving noisily now. She was pitiful. "'Tom, you can't throw me off now,' she murmured from the floor. "'Not unless you crush my head under your heel. I won't leave you.' "'Get up,' said Ossipon. His face was so pale as to be quite visible in the profound black darkness of the shop, while Mrs. Verloc, veiled, had no face almost no discernible form. The trembling of something small and white, a flower in her hat, marked her place, her movements. It rose in the blackness. She had got up from the floor, and Ossipin regretted not having run out at once into the street. But he perceived easily that it would not do. It would not do. She would run after him. She would pursue him shrieking till she sent every policeman within hearing in chase and then goodness only knew what she would say of him. He was so frightened that for a moment the insane notion of strangling her in the dark passed through his mind, and he became more frightened than ever. She had him. He saw himself living in abject terror in some obscure hamlet in Spain or Italy, till some fine morning they found him dead too, with a knife in his breast, like Mr. Verloc. He sighed deeply. He dared not move. And Mrs. Verloc waited in silence the good pleasure of her saviour, deriving comfort from his reflective silence. Suddenly he spoke up in an almost natural voice. His reflections had come to an end. Let's get out or we will lose the train. Where are we going to, Tom? She asked timidly. Mrs. Verloc was no longer a free woman. Let's get to Paris first, the best way we can— go out first and see if the way's clear!" She obeyed; her voice came subdued through the cautiously opened door "It's all right!" Ossipon came out. Notwithstanding his endeavours to be gentle the cracked bell clattered behind the closed door in the empty shop as if trying in vain to warn the reposing Mister Verloc of the final departure of his wife-accompanied by his friend In the hansom they presently picked up, The robust anarchist became explanatory. He was still awfully pale, with eyes that seemed to have sunk a whole half-inch into his tense face. But he seemed to have thought of everything with extraordinary method. When we arrive, he discoursed in a queer, monotonous tone, You must go into the station ahead of me, as if we did not know each other. I will take the tickets and slip yours into your hand as I pass you, Then you will go into the first-class ladies' waiting-room, and sit there till ten minutes before the train starts. Then you come out. I will be outside. You go first on the platform, as if you did not know me. There may be eyes watching there that know what's what. Alone, you are only a woman going off by train. I am known. With me you may be guessed at as Mrs. Verloc running away. Do you understand, my dear? He added, with an effort. "'Yes,' said Mrs. Verloc, sitting there against him in the hansom, all rigid with the dread of the gallows and the fear of death. "'Yes, Tom,' and she added to herself, like an awful refrain. "'The drop given was fourteen feet.' Ossipon, not looking at her, and with a face like a fresh plaster cast of himself after a wasting illness, said, "'By the by, I ought to have the money for the tickets now.' Mrs. Verloc, undoing some hooks of her bodice, while she went on staring ahead beyond the splashboard, handed over to him the new pigskin pocket-book. He received it without a word and seemed to plunge it deep somewhere into his very breast. Then he slapped his coat on the outside. All this was done without the exchange of a single glance. They were like two people looking out for the first sight of a desired goal. It was not till the hansom swung round a corner and towards the bridge that Ossipon opened his lips again. "'Do you know how much money there is in that thing?' he asked, as if addressing slowly some hobgoblin sitting between the ears of the horse. "'No,' said Mrs. Verloc. "'He gave it to me. I didn't count. I thought nothing of it at the time. Afterwards—' She moved her right hand a little. It was so expressive, that little movement of the right hand, which had struck the deadly blow into a man's heart less than an hour before, that Ossipon could not repress a shudder. He exaggerated it then purposely and muttered, I'm cold, I got chilled through. Mrs. Verloc looked straight ahead at the perspective of her escape. Now and then, like a sable streamer blown across a road, the words, the drop given was fourteen feet, got in the way of her tense stare. Through her black veil the whites of her big eyes gleamed lustrously like the eyes of a masked woman. Ossipan's rigidity had something businesslike, a queer official expression. He was heard again all of a sudden, as though he had released a catch in order to speak. Look here, do you know whether you're whether he kept his account at the bank in his own name or in some other name? Mrs. Verloc turned upon him her masked face and the big white gleam of her eyes. "'Other name,' she said thoughtfully. "'Be exact in what you say,' Ossipon lectured in the swift motion of the hansom. "'It's extremely important. I will explain to you. The bank has the numbers of these notes. If they were paid to him in his own name, then when his—his death becomes known, the notes may serve to track us, since we have no other money.' "'You have no other money on you.' "'She shook her head negatively. "'None whatever,' he insisted. "'A few coppers. "'It would be dangerous in that case. "'The money would have then to be dealt specially with. "'Very specially. "'We'd have perhaps to lose more than half the amount "'in order to get these notes changed "'in a certain safe place I know of in Paris. "'In the other case, I mean, "'if he had his account and got paid out under some other name.' "'Say, Smith, for instance. "'The money is perfectly safe to use. "'You understand? "'The bank has no means of knowing that Mr Verloc and, say, Smith, "'are one and the same person. "'Do you see how important it is that you should make no mistake in answering me? "'Can you answer that query at all? "'Perhaps not, eh?' "'She said, composedly, "'I remember now. "'He didn't bank in his own name. "'He told me once that it was on deposit in the name of Prozor.' You are sure? Certain. You don't think the bank had any knowledge of his real name, or anybody in the bank, or... She shrugged her shoulders. How can I know? Is it likely, Tom? No. I suppose it's not likely. It would have been more comfortable to know. Here we are. Get out first and walk straight in. Move smartly. He remained behind and paid the cabman out of his own loose silver. The programme traced by his minute foresight was carried out. When Mrs Verloc, with her ticket for San Malo in her hand, entered the ladies' waiting-room, Comrade Ossipon walked into the bar, and in seven minutes absorbed three goes of hot brandy and water. "'Trying to drive out a cold,' he explained to the barmaid, with a friendly nod and a grimacing smile. Then he came out, bringing out from that festive interlude the face of a man who had drunk at the very fountain of sorrow." he raised his eyes to the clock. It was time. He waited. Punctual, Mrs. Verloc came out, with her veil down and all black, black as commonplace death itself, crowned with a few cheap and pale flowers. She passed close to a little group of men who were laughing, but whose laughter could have been struck dead by a single word. Her walk was indolent, but her back was straight, and Comrade Ossipon looked after it in terror before making a start himself. The train was drawn up, with hardly anybody about its row of open doors. Owing to the time of the year and to the abominable weather, there were hardly any passengers. Mrs. Verloc walked slowly along the line of empty compartments till Ossipon touched her elbow from behind. In here. She got in, and he remained on the platform looking about. She bent forward, and in a whisper, "'What is it, Tom? Is there any danger? Wait a moment. There's the guard.' She saw him accost the man in uniform. They talked for a while. She heard the guard say, "'Very well, sir,' and saw him touch his cap. Then Ossipon came back, saying, "'I told him not to let anybody get into our compartment.' She was leaning forward on her seat. "'You think of everything. You'll get me off, Tom.' she asked in a gust of anguish, lifting her veil brusquely to look at her saviour. She had uncovered a face like adamant, and out of this face the eyes looked on, big, dry, enlarged, lightless, burnt out like two black holes in the white, shining globes. "'There is no danger,' he said, gazing into them with an earnestness almost rapt, which, to Mrs. Verloc, flying from the gallows, seemed to be full of force and tenderness. This devotion deeply moved her, and the adamantine face lost the stern rigidity of its terror. Comrade Ossipon gazed at it as no lover ever gazed at his mistress's face. Alexander Ossipon, anarchist, nicknamed the Doctor, author of a medical and improper pamphlet, late lecturer on the social aspects of hygiene to working men's clubs, was free from the trammels of conventional morality, but he submitted to the rule of science. He was scientific, and he gazed scientifically at that woman, the sister of a degenerate, a degenerate herself, of a murdering type. He gazed at her, and invoked Lombroso as an Italian peasant recommends himself to his favourite saint. He gazed scientifically. He gazed at her cheeks, at her nose, At her eyes, at her ears. Bad. Fatal. Mrs. Verloc's pale lips parting, slightly relaxed under his passionately attentive gaze, he gazed also at her teeth. Not a doubt remained, a murdering type. If Comrade Ossipon did not recommend his terrified soul to Lombroso, it was only because on scientific grounds he could not believe that he carried about him such a thing as a soul. But he had in him the scientific spirit, which moved him to testify on the platform of a railway station in nervous, jerky phrases. He was an extraordinary lad, that brother of yours. Most interesting to study. A perfect type, in a way. Perfect. He spoke scientifically in his secret fear. And Mrs. Verloc, hearing these words of commendation vouchsafed to her beloved dead, swayed forward with a flicker of light in her sombre eyes, like a ray of sunshine heralding a tempest of rain. "'You was that indeed,' she whispered softly, with quivering lips. "'You took a lot of notice of him, Tom. I loved you for it.' "'It's almost incredible the resemblance there was between you two, pursued Ossipon, giving a voice to his abiding dread, and trying to conceal his nervous, sickening impatience for the train to start. "'Yes, he resembled you.' These words were not especially touching or sympathetic, but the fact of that resemblance insisted upon was enough in itself to act upon her emotions powerfully. With a little faint cry, and throwing her arms out, Mrs. Verloc burst into tears at last. Ossipon entered the carriage, hastily closed the door, and looked out to see the time by the station clock. Eight minutes more. For the first three of these, Mrs. Verloc wept violently and helplessly without pause or interruption. Then she recovered somewhat, and sobbed gently in an abundant fall of tears. She tried to talk to her saviour, to the man who was the messenger of life. Oh, Tom, how could I fear to die after he was taken away from me so cruelly? How could I? How could I be such a coward? She lamented aloud her love of life that life without grace or charm, and almost without decency, but of an exalted faithfulness of purpose, even unto murder. And, as very often happens in the lament of poor humanity, rich in suffering but indigent in words, the truth, the very cry of truth, was found in a worn and artificial shape, picked up somewhere among the phrases of sham sentiment. How could I be so afraid of death? Tom, I tried. "'But I'm afraid. "'I tried to do away with myself, and I couldn't. And my heart "'I suppose the cup of horrors was not full enough for such as me. "'Then when you came—' "'She paused, then in a gust of confidence and gratitude. "'I will live all my days for you, Tom,' she sobbed out. "'Go over into the other corner of the carriage, away from the platform,' "'said Ossipon solicitously.' She let her saviour settle her comfortably, and he watched the coming on of another crisis of weeping, still more violent than the first. He watched the symptoms with a sort of medical air, as if counting seconds. He heard the guard's whistle at last. An involuntary contraction of the upper lip bared his teeth with all the aspect of savage resolution as he felt the train beginning to move. Mrs. Verloc heard and felt nothing— and Ossipon, her saviour, stood still. He felt the train roll quicker, rumbling heavily to the sound of the woman's loud sobs, and then, crossing the carriage in two long strides, he opened the door deliberately and leaped out. He had leaped out at the very end of the platform, and such was his determination in sticking to his desperate plan that he managed by a sort of miracle, performed almost in the air, to slam to the door of the carriage. Only then did he find himself rolling head over heels like a shot rabbit. He was bruised, shaken, pale as death and out of breath when he got up. But he was calm, and perfectly able to meet the excited crowd of railwaymen who had gathered round him in a moment. He explained, in gentle and convincing tones, that his wife had started at a moment's notice for Brittany to her dying mother, that of course she was greatly upset— and he considerably concerned at her state, that he was trying to cheer her up, and had absolutely failed to notice at first that the train was moving out. To the general exclamation, "'Why didn't you go on to Southampton then, sir?' He objected to the inexperience of a young sister-in-law left alone in the house with three small children, and her alarm at his absence, the telegraph offices being closed. He had acted on impulse. "'But I don't think I'll ever try that again.' he concluded, smiled all round, distributed some small change, and marched without a limp out of the station. Outside, Comrade Ossipon, flush of safe banknotes as never before in his life, refused the offer of a cab. "'I can walk,' he said, with a little friendly laugh to the civil driver. He could walk. He walked. He crossed the bridge.' Later on the towers of the abbey saw in their massive immobility the yellow bush of his hair passing under the lamps. The lights of Victoria saw him too, and Sloane Square, and the railings of the park. And Comrade Ossipon once more found himself on a bridge. The river, a sinister marvel of still shadows and flowing gleams mingling below in a black silence, arrested his attention. He stood looking over the parapet for a long time. The clock tower boomed a brazen blast above his drooping head. He looked up at the dial. Half past twelve of a wild night in the Channel. And again Comrade Ossipon walked. His robust form was seen that night in distant parts of the enormous town slumbering monstrously on a carpet of mud under a veil of raw mist. It was seen crossing the streets without life and sound, or diminishing in the interminable straight perspectives of shadowy houses bordering empty roadways, lined by strings of gas lamps. He walked through squares, places, ovals, commons, through monotonous streets with unknown names, where the dust of humanity settles inert and hopeless out of the stream of life. He walked and suddenly turning into a strip of a front garden with a mangy grass plot, he let himself into a small grimy house with a latch key he took out of his pocket. He threw himself down on his bed all dressed, and lay still for a whole quarter of an hour. Then he sat up suddenly, drawing up his knees and clasping his legs. The first dawn found him open-eyed in that same posture. This man who could walk so long, so far, so aimlessly, without showing a sign of fatigue, could also remain sitting still for hours without stirring a limb or an eyelid. But when the late sun sent its rays into the room, he unclasped his hands and fell back on the pillow. His eyes stared at the ceiling, and suddenly they closed. Comrade Ossipon slept in the sunlight. End of section 14